This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Drill Down, the business stories behind stocks in the move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today's July 6th. Well, just ahead, IBM can't get its own email system on the cloud. We'll talk about the massive migration fail at IBM. Plus, Didi's in trouble in China, and that could be trouble for a big U.S. company that we talked about on the show just last Friday. And what the heck is multi-physics software? We're going to drill down on a maker of that software that is quietly enjoying some terrific success. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms. In fact, lots of them, like I do, all day long. But when you do so, subscribe, click the follow button. It helps you download every show and make sure you don't miss a single episode. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly on our website, bizpod.net. All right, welcome to The Drill Down. I'm Corey Johnson. I'm joining today. Joining? I am joined. I'm always joined by Ben Wilson. Our editor is uh, with me today to take a look at all the things going on in the world of business. Ben, I hope you had a great long weekend. And a fantastic long weekend. Always going to be back on the podcast with you, Corey. Three is the right number of weekend days, I think. But normally we don't get that. <laughs> but we do have, you know what we got, three most important business stories of the day. You ready? Let's do it. All right, let's start with OPEC. Now, I hesitate to do this because at any moment, OPEC could get over themselves and actually come to some kind of agreement about output levels. But they haven't yet. And it's gone on for days and days and days. Um, there is a bitter dispute between Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates about how much oil to pump, given this great demand, and uh, how much they should hold back. Um, there's always cheating when these deals are announced, whatever the deal is, but at least it sets a standard. So the question is, are going to pump more oil to sort of ease the inflationary price uh, action around oil and everything else right now? Or are they going to let crude keep going and rising above $75 a barrel, which is about where it is right now? There are um, dueling points of view there between UAE and Saudi Arabia and nowhere near any kind of agreement at this point. So um, as a result, we've seen oil prices continue to surge. You know, oil, stock, uh, oil stocks uh, have done as well. But uh, with no deal from OPEC, it means oil prices are running, and that's adding to the inflationary pressures all over the world. So what you're saying is I should probably go fill up my gas tank. Uh, we are we are in contango, right? Future prices are expected to be higher than uh, than uh, than the prices of of this day. But uh, yeah, what what is what's the cost up there in Oregon right now? Fill up your tank. Uh, it depends on the area, but about three fifty a gallon, a little less oh, than man. California, I think. Yeah, we were up over four. I, I, it, the price of gasoline is the stupidest thing. People are so sensitive to the price of gasoline, and and few other things are are, are at that level, but. 
It's it's one of the reasons we watch what's going on with OPEC and uh, and obviously the oil companies we talk to, including some we'll be talking to later this week. All right, number two, um, pharma companies. Uh, this isn't getting a lot of attention, but I think it's super important. Pharma companies, public and, and private payers are all meeting later this month um, at Duke University to talk about how to pay for and how much to pay for Alzheimer drugs. Um, Endpoint News reported this over the weekend. Uh, this Duke Margolis Center for Health Policy is convening this meeting. They were asked to do so by the FDA. Uh, we, of course, have seen this um, uh, great biogen drug, or maybe not great biogen drug, this controversial drug. The FDA barely approved it, and a couple of FDA commissioners quit after the approval of this thing, not liking the way this thing was approved, this drug Aduhelm. And uh, it got a lot of controversy when it approved in June. We talked about it a lot in this podcast. But the question is, how are they going to pay for this? How are the, how the patients going to pay for this? And there are, as we've been discussing, a lot more drugs on the way. Big discussion. This is the kind of way that Washington, interestingly, can kind of lead just by pulling people together in the same room and saying, what are we going to do about these drugs? What's it going to look like? And what are we going to charge? And I think it's going to be, be a big deal for a lot of these companies that are working on Alzheimer treatments, um, not least of which um, Biogen, Roche, uh, Cassava, Anavex, Anavis Bio, um, we'll be keeping an eye on all those companies because these these cures or at least uh, therapies are on the way. It's an exciting time that at least they're making progress in this field. Yeah, it could only, couldn't happen fast enough. Um, one being felt in my family in particular. Um, well, not in particular. It's being felt in a lot of families. I just feel this one personally because uh, my father suffers from Alzheimer's, so I get it. All right, the third most important business story of the day, um, and this is getting a lot of attention, the Pentagon canceling the controversial $10 billion uh, JEDI, the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure Cloud Contract. This is a deal that went to Microsoft. Amazon challenged it. Uh, it was a lot of back and forth about this. The Pentagon finally just pulling the whole thing, saying, I'm, I'm going to read from their release. It said, quote, due to evolving requirements, increased cloud conversancy. I don't even know what that means. And industry advances. The JEDI contract no longer meets its needs. So they're going to create a new contract, put it out for bid. And specifically, this is being seen as good news for Amazon and Amazon Web Services and probably will be. But Microsoft, Amazon Web Services, Google, Oracle, all back in play. Likely this would be a multi-vendor contract. Um, and they're going to solicit pro, uh, uh, proposals from all of those companies uh, saying that they can meet those needs. And uh, interesting stuff uh, for a big spend and a move to the cloud something we will be talking about when we start drilling down on some stocks here. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? One that has nothing to do with the cloud. Chemocentrics. Chemocentrics. It trades with the ticker CCXI. Shares were up 10%, but for the last 12 months, they're down 75%. What's the story with Chemocentrics, Inc.? Chemocentrics, or Chemocentrics, I don't know which it is, but it jumped... Uh, as you said, uh, after they announced that they had amended their filing for a new drug application for uh, something that they have called Avacopan. It's a treatment for anti-neophoral cytoplasmic antibodies. Um, it's a drug that, that uh, is, is desperately needed. And um, they, they had some really positive early studies. When they, they submitted their most recent study for this drug, however, what they found is that the, the FDA committee sort of voted on three things. They voted that the benefit-risk profile was worth going after, but just 10 to 8. They voted 10 to 8 also that the safety profile was adequate enough to pursue the drug. 
But they tied, the FDA committee tied 9-9 on whether the efficacy was good enough for the approval. So the company has been in lots of conversations with the FDA. Um, now, this, this drug leads to the inflammation and destruction of small blood vessels, um, which is what leads to organ damage, leads to organ failure, leads to kidney failure in particular. So this drug could really treat, if it was successful, could uh, effectively treat uh, those problems. The question is, ultimately, however, um, would this drug get approved? Is the study done right? Here is CEO Tom Shaw talking about what happened when they got that mixed result from the FDA. So the vote, I would say, was, um, although ultimately slightly favorable, uh, kind of a split vote and not um, entirely what we expected. But we are having very subsequent, constructive, ongoing discussions with the FDA about finding a way forward to bring Avacopan to associated vasculitis patients. So there you have it. They were surprised by the result. They've managed to restructure their submission to the FDA. Looks like it could be really positive, um, given how close the vote was last time around. If they've restructured it in a way for the FDA to um, approve it, it would be good things for this drug and good things for those who suffer from this uh, disease. Seemed like he had quite a sense of humor about the split vote. I'd imagine that kind of thing is pretty high stakes for this company. 100%. And you could see it in the reaction to the stock price today. Corey, what is your next drill down? Well, I want to look at two stocks. Is that cheating if I look at both DD and Bookings.com? It's only cheating if you think it's cheating, Corey. It's not cheating. Just decided. All right, then it's not cheating. We get extra in this show. <laughs> extra indeed. So what are these two companies, Corey? So Booking and DD. Um, booking we talked about booking last week with Tony Monopoly, remember? Yes. Um, we did talk about it with Tony Monopoly last Friday, one of my favorite interviews. Oh, yeah. um, so I see DD Global shares are down 20%. Trades today. in the ticker DIDI today. And booking is flat. How are DD and booking connected? Well, Beijing is cracking down on lots of big data companies based in China, ordering the U.S. listed Chinese companies to be removed from app stores worldwide. And so existing users continue to use DD. DD, of course, is, is like an Uber-like uh, service in China, principally in China. And new subscribers, however, are unable to sign up to DD. Growth is obviously hugely important to them, and getting new subscribers is pretty important as well. But there's a probe going on into their cybersecurity, and it has shut down that service for new users. The company just did an IPO. The stock went out at 14. It traded up. It's trading about 12 now. That's the problem of the stock market. But a freeze on growth, not good for DD. Also not good for Booking.com. The market didn't seem to notice. The stock is flat, as you mentioned. But Booking has a $500 million investment uh, in DD. Now, it's not clear from the financial filings of DD what the price was exactly, but it looks like Booking is way underwater. From my initial cursory read, it looks like they paid 40 bucks a share. As I mentioned, stock's trading 12 right now. Now, a while ago, the CEO of Booking, uh, Glenn Fogel, was boasting about this, this investment and how much work they were doing in China in particular, how Didi was a key to that uh, growth in China, but also taking a very, what I'll call a very Chinese long-term view of growth in that market. This is a conversation with our friend Mark Mahaney, of RBC Markets back in November of 2019. Here is CEO Glenn Fogel. I'm very pleased with how we are uh, situated in China in general. 
you know, we have our organic uh, growth there that we have almost a thousand employees in China, our own employees who are doing work there for both our Agoda and Booking.com brands. We also do things with partnerships. We have an investment in Seatrip. We've had that for a very long time. That continues. Seatrip continues to sell our hotels. We like that. Uh, we also have an uh, investment in Metuan, like that one too. And we have an investment in Didi, like that one too. So we have all different ways, organic, partnerships, and then we have uh, relationships that we don't have investments in, standard affiliate relationships with some very big players in China. Lots of different ways to do it. Yes, right now, China economies have a little bit of a slowdown. Yes, that's impacted travel a little bit right now. But again, got to be there for the long term. Can't let uh, a single year or a couple of years affect what your long-term goal is. So uh, to me, that's a very Chinese approach, right, is, is look at what the long-term is going to be. Think about it from way down the line and wait to get there for that to, um, uh, to manifest itself. And the hopefully short-term shutdown of DD for two new customers by the Chinese government um, won't last for a long time and booking will maybe someday benefit from that investment that, like I said, right now is way underwater. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at IBM. IBM. So it's down 1% today, but for the last 12 months, shares are down 15% and 5% in the last week. What's the story with IBM? Yeah, on Friday, you know, the Friday before holiday weekend, they made a real surprise announcement that um, uh, an important leader there, Jim Whitehurst, who had been the CEO of Red Hat, they did a massive acquisition of Red Hat recently, that Whitehurst was leaving the company after just two years there. I think he was seen as a super important person that would be there for the long term and really change the way that IBM works. He wrote a book um, while he was at uh, Red Hat called The Open Organization, where he really talked about how the approach that he'd had earlier on his, in his career when he was the COO at Delta Airlines and uh, had worked at Boston Consulting, he had this real top-down approach to how he ran businesses. But at Red Hat, he started to figure out there was a different way of doing things, this open organization. And what he basically let people kind of let ideas bubble up from the bottom, let leadership happen on the ground level. Uh, in his book, he wrote the projects of all kinds just beyond software would naturally emerge through Red Hat and until it was obvious when so many people were working on something that they'd have to devote full time to it. And his job as a leader was to reorganize, to go after the projects that people were seeing on the ground. That is not the way they do things at IBM. There was a belief that maybe that could change. Now, on a related note, IBM had been working on this thing, this this move towards cloud email and cloud calendaring, you know, like all the rest of us do. Whether it's whether it's an, you know, any kind of email with Yahoo email for God's sake going all the way back to that or Google or or you know whatever, those are the dominant uh, leaders in 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 cloud email or even, you know, Microsoft, right? IBM wanted to move its own employees. They spent according to the register 18 months working in this company-wide email migration, and it's gone completely off the rails. Employees, Nick, I saw some of this on Twitter over the weekend, they're unable to use their email or schedule calendar events. Um, for some users, it went on for days. Um, just kind of amazing because that's what IBM says they do, right? Like, hey, hire us, we're IBM, we'll move your company out of the cloud. We can't do it to ourselves, but um, uh, it was it's a it's a fairly amazing thing. So here is the IBM CEO in the most recent conference call talking about this vaunted ability 
the, the moving their own stuff onto the cloud and indeed moving customers onto the cloud. What a great, massive, TAM, total addressable market for moving stuff onto the cloud. As you know, we're also executing the separation of a managed infrastructure services business, now branded Kindrel, which is on track to be completed by the end of the year. These or changes not. are all well underway, though, as you would expect, it will take some time to see the full benefit. I have immense confidence in our strategy around the transformative power of hybrid cloud and AI. And the decisive moves we are making provide a solid foundation for us to unlock future growth. Decisive moves. As I've told you before, we see the hybrid cloud opportunity at a trillion dollars with less than 25% of workloads having moved to the cloud so far. We are reshaping our future as a hybrid cloud platform and AI company. So yeah, they see a great opportunity there and they ought to, they ought to be seeing it right in their backyard. IBM having some issues with their own tech. All right, coming up next, we're going to have one of our favorite guests, Bocal Capital Partners CIO, Kim Forrest. She's got a company uh, that's a really interesting one indeed, focused on multi-physics software. All that after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. ERA's event access and monitoring intelligence platform improves earnings season and the investor events in between. Through comprehensive calendar tracking, one-click event access, dynamic monitors, multicasting, and more. Powered by an advanced language processing engine, which consumes some 40,000 investor events annually across 10,000 global equities. Learn more at era, A-I-E-R-A.com. And remember to join the Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram at DrillDownPod, and check out our website, bizpod.net, to let us know what stocks you think we should be drilling down on. All right, welcome back to The Drill Down. Our guest, one of our favorites, Boca Capital Partners, Chief Investment Officer, Kim Forrest. Kim, um, welcome from the from from the Midwest. I mean, you're in the Midwest. I'm in San Francisco. But, uh, but there you are uh, with another Pittsburgh company for us. You gave us a great one last time around. You've got, you've got a company called Ansys. Ansys, yeah. Which I didn't yes. know. I've never known this. I've never run into this one. This is a real company. Really? Really? I don't know, because it's shot up a couple of times and kind of gotten into some of the tech sort of, I don't know, maybe podcast kind of things, but or maybe it's a not. podcast maybe thing now, old, as all our listeners will attest to now. right now. Um, right. It is in and the S&P 500 index, right? This yes. is a big company. Yes, it's a new thing. Yeah. Well, um, I knew them when, when they were teeny tiny small, but now they're kind of Medium small, right? If you're in the S&P 500. So this is a company engaged in multi-physics engineering or yes. multi-physics software. What is multi yes. advanced multi-physics engineering simulations? Okay. These are things that help products get to you better, faster, stronger, and cheaper. How's that? That sounds like something an investor might want to play in. But what they really do is for engineers, and this was for the nerdiest of all engineers, the PhD engineer, mechanical engineer, to figure out if a part would be able to do its job for the lifespan that it was intended for. So you're making a widget, it's gonna be somehow in a very hot environment, is that widget gonna melt? Finite element analysis, multi-physics, could help you figure out that if that part was going to be good enough to do its job. 
Let's use the example of a piston in an engine. Yes, exactly. So here's the thing. Back in the 60s, you used to employ these uh, PhD engineers and then use their slide rolls, slide rules, sorry, slide ruler things, if you remember yeah, that, remember to figure out my these dad used equations. To have a, my dad used to have a slide rule at the, at the, at the desk. It's kind of See, an amazing yeah, thing. Yeah, my grandfather too. Yeah, we're, we're nerds. It's all right. So, um, or at least we're derived from nerds. Anyhow, so um, people would hand calculate these and then do one kind of issue at a time. Like, can it withstand the heat? Could it withstand the friction? Could it, you know, uh, the movement? Could it withstand all of that? So it's basically trying to figure out the wear and tear on a um, across different factors. One for friction, one for heat, one for repetitive motion or something, I guess. Right. And then what you, if you were really special, you could say, well, what if we use this alloy? Will it change? So that would be, you know, a difference in the chemistry, the physics of the product. So uh, John Swanson created a computer program with Westinghouse whenever they were uh, designing nuclear reactors. And he was, um, he made sure he could take this code and create his own company, but he was doing multi-physics kind of equations on figuring out parts of, you know, a nuclear reactor if it was going to be able to live up to its job. So hooray for that kind of thinking. But um, they were able to expand as computers got better, faster, and cheaper into different areas. And now it's a really great thing for engineers to be able to quickly, at the beginning of the design cycle, decide if this um, material should be used, if this design should be used. So it really does make products come to us faster, better, stronger, and cheaper. So specifically, the, uh, has their business, because you know, I went through the 10K and it's just kind of amazing all the different industries that they're in. It would make sense yeah. to me, a Pittsburgh-based company, that they'd be doing, you know, Westinghouse, you know, right? They'd be doing nuclear plants. Okay, sure. It makes sense to me that they're doing automotive and automotive, probably a big growing business, not least of which all these electric cars that require entirely new designs because of the weight distribution is so much different. They're so much heavier specifically different alloys being used in the rest of the vehicle as well. But there's a lot more that these guys are doing than just cars and nuke plants. Yeah. Well, through acquisition, they've been able to add onto their platform. And one of the more exciting areas, and this is another probably Pittsburgh uh, uh, software company that you've never heard of. They bought a company called Ansoft. And that was A-N-S-T was their ticker symbol. Um, and what they did was uh, electronic uh, uh, design automation. And that allows you as a electrical engineer to determine if your design is going to actually work before you build it. So, you know, as things become smaller, the electrons zipping around your computer chip get, can interfere with each other. And that's kind of solving that problem. So they've really branched out into an incredible amount of other industries, um, air, airplanes, HVAC, and even some biometric kind of stuff through acquisition. But it all goes down to, is this thing going to be able to function in the environment? And we can model it and simulate that, that it's, it's life cycle. We'll just say it that way. And this is a big business. <sighs> I mean, these guys, you know, so I, when I'm, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm looking across the street from me. I'm not actually, can't see across the street right now. But across the street from me is the headquarters for Autodesk, 
and they did about four billion in sales. These guys did almost two billion, one point seven four billion in sales in the last twelve months. That ain't nothing. No, no, and these are oddly continuing because once you're an engineering group that makes, well, it's kind of like the same thing for uh, AutoCAD. But once you design or you say uh, this is part of the process, it's part of the process. Then you you can trial it, but um, it's long live these relationships. Anytime an engineering department says yes, we're going to um, incorporate Ansys's products, you can rest assured those are pretty sticky uh, relationships because now they're bringing out products and they have to keep all of this information about what went into designing it. God so basically it the ship, design of the but, product was tested using the ANSYS software. And yes. so tweaks to the product or every year's changes to the product can most simply be run through the same software again, that if you're only changing one of the multi-factors or multi-physics, yep. you, know, you only have to change one thing next time you make a change. Right. And especially in automotive and aerospace, you have to have a log of what you've done. Right. And it just kind of goes into that, that um, process. I'm not much of a Elon Musk fan. It must be said, but <laughs> um, I was super impressed when I went on a tour of SpaceX a while back and uh, the way they were just completely re-architecting the design of rockets. Yeah. And this isn't the only industry that's doing that. And I kind of, I kind of feel you on the Elon Musk thing. It's, He's a lot, he's hard, he's hard to watch, but um, he does have some good ideas about rethinking. How well, it would seem to me, right, that if you've got Lockheed, if you've got Blue Origin, if you've got SpaceX all redesigning the most basics of a rocket, that there's a lot of work for companies like Ansys. And, and I mean, are there a lot of competitors out there to these guys? There are not. There are long lived um, competitors, and by that I mean there's something called NASTRAN, and it's really more of a, um, a uh, the way things are coded up. It's, it's more of the language of engineering as opposed to a product. But automakers and um, aerospace have used NASTRAN uh, simulation for a while, and it just is embedded in there. But here's the thing, ANSYS's product is so much better at for, to, to use and to be able to see I don't know, the, a more comprehensive view of the engineering problem that they use NASTRAN and ANSYS. So that's a real, real kudos to the company. It would seem, I'm, I'm, I, I wouldn't begin to suggest M&A activity or anything like it, but it does seem to me like they would work really closely with a company like Autodesk, where you're doing CAD design, you're doing computer-aided design uh, of complex systems, engines, and so on, and that at the same time you'd want to be testing it for what kind of materials are going to use and changes you can make the design during the design process to how successful the, the, the part is going to be and how it's going to last. Yes. And they, the really interesting thing about the company is that they are long sighted and there has been a whole bunch of different CAD products through the years. That's where I started as a software engineer was in CAD. So this is kind of like going back home. Um, but anyhow, uh, so there's there were many, many CAD products. And ANSYS, unlike a lot of their competitors, didn't get married to like the biggest ones, like parametric for uh, mechanical engineering. They were agnostic about what CAD platform you came from. They worked well with others. 
And I think this really speaks well of their vision for their product that they knew just going at the biggest uh, vendor might have given them a lot more revenues in the beginning of their life, but the longevity of the company had to depend on them being able to work well with all of the um, CAD vendors. Surely, yeah, because there used to be a lot more than there are today. Yeah. But also I was struck when I read their 10K that they're in the semiconductor business, which does seem very different. That semiconductor test is a whole giant industry in and of its own. And I was surprised to see these guys who seem to have more experience with the physical nature of of, of devices that move, not semiconductors where the, the movement is limited to, um, uh, you know, energy. Zeros and ones. <laughs> right, and zeros and ones and bits and bits. Well, you know what they did? This is another acquisition. They have really poured money into that adjacent area, that EDA space. And I think it's really worked out for them. Although, you know, I'm a big uh, fan of semiconductors. So um, that's my bias. Who isn't? Yeah, we, need them. we need more of them. Hey, maybe Elon Musk can get into that. Oh, Just kidding. Um, so what okay. drives uh, this company forward? Um going over the long term, they spend just a ton of money in R and D. I mean, twenty percent of revenues. Yep. They continue to spend a lot of money in R and D, which seems like a lot for a software business. But they're but they're doing it. But remember, software really has no cost of goods sold. True. Like R and D kind of is their um, their cost of goods sold. If you are not innovating, you are allowing your uh, competitor, whoever they are, and they have many competitors but you're allowing their, your competitors to get an edge on you in the world of software. And I think that's something that your listeners should really pay attention to. Make sure when you're looking at software companies, you don't get confused because they have no or relatively zero uh, cost of goods sold. So they must always be spending on next year's product and the year after's product and to keep their um, customers engaged. Yeah, they do have a, a long-term view they're using the classic from the classic playbook of Lexus, Nexus, or Bloomberg, right? Bloomberg giving software away, charging a fortune to its users, but but giving it away to uh, MBA students, or Lexus, yeah. Nexus giving away Lexus to law school students everywhere. These guys are giving their software away for free use to engineering students. Absolutely, and um, I think it's really worked for them. At the beginning, you know, I I think that they started back in the early or early two thousands doing that and really going after that market. And I thought it was kind of goofy, but then I got it. You know, you you have this new master's degree or PhD candidate, a uh, person that you're paying a lot of money to. You want them productive. You use the software that they're comfortable with, and that's how they uh, were the camel getting their nose under the tent, so to speak. Also interesting to me that they, that like any great software model, you, as, as an analyst, you can actually do the work and see that they've got backlog. They've got money that's, that's sitting on the balance sheet ready to be recognized. And it's, it's, it's nearly a billion dollars now. Right. And that's, for, that's what I was saying at the beginning of this uh, chat that we're having is once ANSYS gets in there, they're pretty much in there till the end of that company or they get sold or something or the engineering guys walk out. Because, you know, they, this is the tool that they use day in and day out to do their job. So what's the one last thing? So what are you looking at for these guys going forward that might make you more interested in the company or show you that they're having real success? Well, they brought in somebody uh, as CEO. This is only the fourth CEO that they've had from Microsoft. And I think that's kind of interesting. The fourth CEO that they've he, had ever. The first CEO they've had from Microsoft. 
Right. Well, the first, right. The first CEO that they've had from Microsoft, he didn't seem like a natural fit because he didn't have the heavy engineering background that the prior three CEOs had, that they were actual engineers that then went over onto the selling and, and the, uh, you know, sales side of uh, the product. But um, I think that every man approach, making sure that the software can be useful for not just the PhD, but down lower into the design chain uh, user. I think that's interesting. And they really do understand their end markets. Um, they're pushing big into automotive, especially with the um, electric cars. And they have that unique, as you pointed out, the uh, semiconductor and the, just the electrical product suite that they can be both the, the chassis and the now electric motor. So I think that's super interesting. Super interesting company. Glad you brought to us. Kim Forrest from Boca Capital Partners. We appreciate your uh, your eye and what's coming out of uh, that great that great state in Western <laughs> Pennsylvania there in Pittsburgh. Uh, another interesting company. Great stuff. All right. Well, we're going to do the drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. We're going to look at the R&D spending from this company. This company spends so much in R&D. How much do they spend every working day? Number might astound you. We'll have that when the drill down continues. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A, dot com. And as people are taking notice of the Drill Down podcast, Ben, I don't know if you saw this, but we got a shout-out on a, a Marketplace podcast last week. We got a shout-out on a, the Future Perfect newsletter this week. Lots of people are noticing this show, but are you listening to it every day? Please do hit that subscribe button, follow us, and catch every episode. We're back with the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. So, Ben, I raised the question, R&D, how much does this company spend? Answers every single working day, that is, take away the weekends, take away your 10 holidays a year, 250 days left, how many Dollars does this company spend every day on R&D? Would you believe it's $1.4 million every day on research and development? Well, that's a number for you. That's pretty exciting. That's I'd okay. imagine that's going to pay off in some ways. Uh, it shows you just how they want to invest and stay ahead of all their competitors. And it's obviously been working for Ansys. Interesting stuff. All right. Well, thank you for listening to The Drill Down. I'm Corey Johnson. Ben Wilson is our editor. Glad to have you on. And The Drill Down is a production the Business Podcast Network.